Last week we talked about that they're that, uh, doing a two-part little finish to uh, Oh, the Places We'll Go. And uh, that t- today is part two uh, on heaven. And uh, we decided to finish with that because uh, in the great scheme of things, that's the last place hopefully we're going to go, right? That's it. And uh, so we're going to continue uh, talking about heaven this morning. Uh, we began last week in John 14 where Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, you believe in God, believe also in me. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelations, chapters 21 and a little bit of 22. Um, but let me just say this, that if you open the Bible uh, to any of the Gospels and begin to read, uh, you'll see Jesus. And if you keep reading, uh, you'll find Jesus going through all of it. Um, going through joys and sorrows, commitments and betrayal, birth and growth and life and death. But if you keep reading to the last page of the Gospels, you'll encounter the resurrected Jesus. And God promised heaven. That's what we started talking about last week. God promised heaven and he made that promise alive and real through the resurrection of Jesus. And then he calls us to trust in that promise every day of our lives. He made that promise real and alive through the resurrection of Jesus. And then he calls us to trust that promise every day of our lives. So the single most important fact the Bible teaches us about heaven is this, that God has promised heaven. God has promised heaven. And if God has promised heaven, then heaven is as good as God is faithful. That's what we want to talk about this morning. And there are three parts, three things that I'd like you to walk away with this morning. And the first one is this, that heaven gives us a reason to live courageously. Heaven gives us a reason to live courageously. The second point is that heaven gives us the strength to live courageously. And then third point this morning is that heaven gives us the ultimate goal of a courageous life. The reason to live courageously, the strength to live courageously, and the ultimate goal of the courageous life. Well, let's begin Revelation 21, starting at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So here's the very first thing that we read in the very first verse of chapter 21, or 22, sorry, um, yeah, 21, is that there's a new heaven and a new earth. Do you remember when Jesus, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray? And, and what did Jesus say? He said, our Father who is in heaven. That, that, that the God of the universe resided in heaven. And when Jesus w- died on the cross and was resurrected and ascended to heaven, the Bible teaches us that he went to sit at the right hand of the Father. And so there is this place uh, called heaven that the Father resided. And then we find out here in Revelation 21 that at the end of all times, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth that God creates. Just picture this place uh, with no pollution, this decaying old world that's made brand new, that everything is right, the air is clean, the water is fresh, all of that is just right, and God has recreated heaven and earth for us. And then verse two, he says, and I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself 
will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated at the, right, uh, seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who, uh, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And then if we jump down to chapter 22, the first few verses, it says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In verse 2 it says, And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The Father will make his dwelling place, his permanent residence with us. Jesus here is depicted as the Lamb, the Lamb of God. And so we have this picture, this spectacular picture of heaven. Uh, we have this spectacular picture of this new heaven and new earth, and it's even more than we can imagine. Here's what he says, that there'll be this water running through that God will provide life for us. He'll provide water, he'll provide food. He says not gonna be, you're not gonna need a lamp, you're not gonna need to worry about the sun because the, the God of the universe and the Lamb will be your light. There won't need to be lamps, there won't need to be the sun because the light of God will light the earth, will light the world for us. And more important than anything else is that God will make his dwelling place with us and we will see him face to face. Now we talked about last week that why do we know this? Why do we believe this? Why do we build our hope on this? And it's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's because Christ rose again. And we trust that and we know that and we know that for 2,000 years the, the critics and the cynics have tried to convince us that it's not true and yet here we are. No one has ever disproved the resurrection but the proofs continue to build up that Christ is risen. And we believe that if Christ is risen, if the resurrection is true, then all of the rest that God promises has to be true. And heaven is true as a result so this description that we get of heaven is really hard to imagine. It's hard to get our arms around it. It's bigger, it's greater than anything. We, we do our best to try to put words around it, but it is more beautiful, it is more perfect, it is more pure than anything that we've ever experienced. And then aside from this imagery that we get at heaven, aside from all of this description that we get of heaven, here's the thing that's the most striking, is that we will be surrounded by the perfect, unconditional love of Christ. That the very air we breathe will be given to us by the unconditional love of Christ. That's why he says every tear will be wiped clean, every anxiety will be gone, every fear will be dissolved because we will be experiencing in our lives 
the unconditional love of Christ in everything. And it's hard for us to get our arms around it, and yet we know that it's true. But we have the promise of Christ through the resurrection that someday our imagination we will see for real, that we'll see in person and we'll experience the unconditional love of Christ that will be with him. And that's a powerful picture for us. So here's the, very, here's the first point. Heaven gives us a reason to live courageously. There are two things this morning I'd like you to consider. And the first is this, that, that God will make all things new. The one on the throne uh, that God declares for all to hear, I am making everything new. Everything is new, no pollution, no decay, but we have this promise that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of anything that's going on, regardless of uh, you know, global warming, regardless of anything that you can point to, here's what he says, here's the promise that we have, is that he is making all things new, and we can rest on that, and we can have hope in that, uh, we can believe in that, because God says, because his word is true. And here's the second thing, that God will make uh, the Bible's central promise good, and that is that God says, uh, I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will be my children. Verse three, actually, of Revelation 21 says, and I heard a loud voice in the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will make residence. God himself will be with them. Uh, and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So let's consider just for a second what the original readers of this letter, uh, this revelation uh, that God gave John, what, what were they thinking? What were they reading at that time? Because they were under extreme pressure and persecution that had started around AD 61 with Nero and continued on another 20 years later with Domitian and uh, that, that, that the Christians were being persecuted uh, because they were Christians, because they were followers of Christ. And, and so we know that, that Nero instituted this whole idea of the Colosseum and, and, and feeding, basically feeding Christians to the lions. And, and Nero, it says that in his gardens, he would have Christians encased in wax and use them as torches to light his, his gardens, uh, that he would do everything that he possibly could to torture and to persecute Christians to try to stamp out Christianity. And his predecessor, Domitian, did the exact same thing uh, later on, that he did everything that he possibly could to stamp out Christianity, but he failed. They all failed. In fact, the church grew through this persecution. And one historian talks about the fact that, that you couldn't wipe the smile off their face. You couldn't get them to stop singing uh, praise to the Lord because they knew that their life didn't end here. They knew that their life wasn't defined by the persecution. It wasn't defined by the Colosseum, but it was defined by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that they would spend eternity with him. So as they were sent to the Colosseum, as they were sent to the lions, as they were sent into persecution, the, the, the believers, the followers of Jesus would give praise to the Lord. And what happened is that the, they realized that this wasn't working and, and the, the uh, the martyrdom in the Colosseum just died out because nobody wanted to watch this anymore. Nobody wanted to see these people who were being thrown in the front of lions to have tears in their eyes of praise and thanksgiving and to say that they forgave those who persecuted them, 
Who wants to watch that? And it just died out, and the church continued to grow through all of that. Because of the resurrection, because of the promise of heaven, because they knew that what they were going through didn't define their life, but they had another home that they would spend eternity with Jesus, that he had gone ahead to prepare a place for them, that where he was, they might be there also with him. Well, here's another thing. It was interesting. Um, An historian named Rodney Starks wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And in this book, he kind of describes this time in history uh, that that the church... Uh, Christianity grew from about somewhere between 8 to 10% of the population of the Roman Empire uh, to roughly uh, 50% of the Roman Empire. And he was trying to figure out what caused this exponential growth, what caused this amazing growth um, of the church over about this 100-year period. And one of his conclusions was this, uh, that that uh, in that century, there were two plagues that hit the Roman Empire. Now we understand that it was probably measles or smallpox in both of those plagues, uh, but roughly around 165 AD, uh, there was a plague of measles or smallpox, and people were dying, and and the the whole cities, major cities, were being contaminated, and, and subsequently, the wealthy people and the doctors were fleeing the cities uh, in order to try to avoid being contaminated by these plagues. And so we know this because one of those doctors, his name was Galen, and you can look him up, you can Google him, uh, because sometimes it's called the Plague of Galen, but he wrote about this. He was a doctor who fled Rome uh, to get away from the contagion, and he writes that there was one group that stayed, one group that didn't go anywhere, and they were the Christians. And they stayed and they cared for the sick. And they fed them and they bathed them. And when they died, they buried them. When they got well, they took care of them. And what happened is that, uh, that even if you weren't part of the church, even if you weren't a believer, that so many families would leave and, and they would just leave their sick behind. They would abandon them to, to get away. They were so afraid of being contaminated. Uh, and so they would just leave them behind and the Christians would come and, and pick them up and carry them to a safe place and feed them and bathe them and care for them. And among those who the Christians took care of, the death rate was about 50%. Among those who were abandoned, uh, you know, the death rate was close to 100%. But but what happened is that 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 through this, that the the church was strengthened so much and these people who survived this plague, um, they, they were drawn to these people who had loved them like this. They were drawn to these people who cared for them and, and uh, toward the end of that century, another 100 years, there was another plague and it lasted about 15 years and, the, and historians will say that during this time that roughly 2,000 people were dying every day, 35,000 a week, uh, that by the end of this plague, almost about a million people had passed away from this plague and who was the group that stayed again and cared for the sick? It was the church, it was the Christians, they stayed because they weren't defined by this plague. They weren't defined by this disease that they knew that, hey, you know what? What's the worst thing that can happen to me today? I can see Jesus. That's the worst thing that can happen to me. In between, I'm gonna care, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna live the way Jesus did. I'm gonna love the the poor. I'm gonna love those who are helpless. I'm gonna love those who are sick the, the way Jesus did. 
And because of that, the, the Christianity, the church grew from roughly 8 to 10% to about 50% during that 100-year time. Not because of any great speeches, any spectacular sermons, not because anybody was walking on water, not because anybody was doing anything amazing. It was because they were caring for the sick and they were caring for the poor. They were caring for those who were destitute, who were abandoned and left on their own. And people were drawn to that love. They were drawn to that image of Christ that they saw. And it gives us a reason, heaven gives us a reason to live courageously because we know how it ends. We know how the story finishes, that we're with Jesus, that our life is in him. And death is just a portal. Death is just a doorway to be with, to be with Jesus. John Lennon wrote a song called Imagine. And uh, interesting song, he says, he wrote, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. How's that working out for us? Imagine all the people living for today. Isn't that kind of the world that we live in? Isn't that why we have the chaos that we have? Because if all we have is to live for today and we don't have any hope for tomorrow and we don't have any hope for after we die or we don't have any hope for eternity, we're just living for ourselves, why would anyone in their right mind care for the poor? Why would anyone in their right mind take care of the sick? Why would anybody in their right mind do anything but try to make themselves comfortable and make themselves important and do things for themselves uh, because this is it. Once this is over, it's over, so let's get it all we can right now because this is our only shot. Why would anybody do anything less than that? But when we believe that there is a place we're going, that there is a reward that God has gone before us, that he has prepared a place that we are going to spend eternity in the presence of Christ, then why wouldn't we take care of the poor? Why wouldn't we live courageously? Because we have that promise in the Lord. We have that promise that, that he gives us. And so it prompted C.S. Lewis years ago to make this statement. If you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. Well, this brings us to our second point, that, that heaven gives us the strength to live courageously. And, and here are a couple of, couple of reasons. First, God is the origin and the goal. That uh, then God said in Revelations 21 that I am the Alpha and the Omega, which can only mean one thing, that God is the beginning and the end of all existence and the center and the meaning of it all. And the second point, and here's a shocker for the first century Jews that, that John revealed in Revelation that there'll be no temple in heaven. Why is that? Because God will be dwelling with his people, that we will be dwelling with the lamb. And, you know, and for all of history, for the Jews, the temple had been the place where the spirit of God had resided. It's the place where you went to worship. But in heaven, uh, we're told that we will reside with God, we'll dwell with God, so there'll be no need for a temple because we will be with him. We will be in his presence constantly. And it gives us the strength to live courageously. The third point is that God will be light. No sun or moon from celestial lights. Why? Before the glory of God gives it light. 
and the lamb is its lamp. You know, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus made this incredible statement. He said, I am the light of the world. He who walks in darkness will no longer stumble, but I will bring his light. I will be his light. Jesus had already promised that he was the light of the world, and now we see it played out uh, in eternity. Now we see it played out in heaven, that Christ is the light of the world, the Lamb. And then the fourth thing is that God will be the sustenance for all, the water of life and the tree of life that sustain life of the kingdom of kingdom people are flowing from, the, from God and from the Lamb, that we will receive all of that, that we will receive our sustenance, our food, our drink from God, from the God who loves us. If you look at the book of Revelation from beginning to end, you'll notice that there's a wonderful narrative about Jesus. Beginning, in the beginning of Revelation to the end, the focus is on two things, God on his throne and the Lamb. Uh, over and over again, it's about who we worship. It's about who we're with, not about what, where we are or what we're doing. But the lamb that lived was slain and he was raised again and he conquers all. And so early in Revelation, Jesus reveals himself uh, through, through the writing of John in the first chapter. He's described as the Lord of all of the churches. He, he's described as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And then we get to chapter four and he's described as the Lamb of God. Uh, the lamb who came, this picture of this helpless lamb who came and was slain but was raised again uh, and, and has given us eternal life. And then later in the, in the book of Revelation, there's this other image that we're given of God as this lion, uh, sometimes called the Lion of Judah. He is this warrior. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death, uh, that, that, that we're victorious through him. But then we get to the end of Revelation and we get back to this whole picture of the lamb. It's just so interesting to me because this is not how I would have written the story. I'm kind of, I kind of lean toward the lion. I like the idea of a lion or maybe I'd go with, you know, uh, Thor or somebody, you know, I mean, somebody would, you know, big and strong and, and looks like a warrior and we're gonna clean house now and we're gonna take care of everything and I'm strong enough to deal with anything and I'm po more powerful than anyone else. And, and God gives us this metaphor, this picture of a lamb. And here's what we know about, about sheep, the, the lambs, they were innocent, they were helpless. And we have this story of Jesus who, who, though he was the very essence of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and became obedient and became in the likeness of men that the God of the universe gave up his glory to come and be like us, to be one of us. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he gave that up for our sake and he became helpless and he was slain, uh, the perfect lamb, for our sake. And then he was raised again and we have life. And the picture that he wants us to take this morning, the picture of Christ in heaven is the lamb who was slain, the lamb who gave himself up for us because that's what love looks like. That's what perfect love looks like. That he didn't consider his own equality with God, but he loved us so much he gave all of that up and allowed himself to be crucified. And then we know that he was raised again. And without taking one speck of God's glory, as the band comes back up, we're gonna do another song, without taking one speck of God's glory, 
The lamb becomes central to everything in heaven. The God of heaven is seen most clearly in the lamb. If you want to know what God looks like, it's the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was raised. The lamb is a reflection of God in heaven. Heaven is all about God. So here's the last point, that heaven gives us the ultimate goal for a courageous life, the ultimate goal of a courageous life. You know, here, let me just apologize um, if you came this morning thinking that I was gonna explain, you know, all the symbolism of those pictures of heaven, you know, and uh, the gates and the streets of gold and all that kind of stuff because really all of those things are secondary to the fact that we're in the presence of Christ. None of it will matter. In fact, there's a pic, there's a, there talks in, in Revelation about crowns, that we'll have these crowns. And, and we joke, you know, all the time if we do something really sacrificial or something really hard, whoops, another star in your crown, you know. And I have this picture of my mom in heaven with her head just wobbling because her crown's so big. Um, but here's the thing, even those crowns that they talk about in Revelation, you know what it says that we're gonna do? We're gonna take those off and we're gonna lay them at the feet of Jesus because they mean nothing compared to being in the presence of Christ. Nothing compared to experiencing the unconditional love of Jesus, to breathe that air, to experience that idea of every tear being dried, every part of every anxious moment of our life being uh, healed, being cleaned, everything that we've ever done wrong being forgiven, to have that experience, to live in that environment is so much more precious so much more powerful than anything that we can get. And, and then for those of you who have this idea of heaven that, you know, it's like, gosh, who wants to sit on a cloud and play a harp all day? That's, just, just get that picture out of your head, okay? Because that's not happening. That, that's not real. But to be in the experience of Christ is, is, is more than we can even imagine. It's more than we can even describe. And here's the other thing about heaven. Heaven takes the pressure off. If you, if you look at your spouse or you look at your children or you look at your job, your work, as the thing that fulfills you, um, then you're, you're never gonna know real satisfaction. You're putting too much pressure on a spouse or a child or, a, or work to really fully satisfy you. You may have noticed sometimes when you're driving across a bridge and the bridge will have a sign on it that says, you know, X number of tons allowed on this bridge, that you can only put so many cars and trucks on the bridge at a time. Or, and if you, if you exceed that weight, something's gonna crack. Something's gonna give. And if you put that pressure, the whole weight of your soul on a spouse or on your children, or on your work, something's gonna crack. Uh, something's not gonna make it. And only, only when we put the weight of our soul on Jesus, that Jesus can hold the weight of our soul and heaven is a promise of that. If you find yourself always complaining, uh, complaining about a spouse or complaining about a child or complaining about your work, it may be that you're putting too much pressure on what can't completely fulfill you and something's gonna crack. Now, 
That's not to say that some of us don't need to step up, guys. Um, some of those complaints aren't legit, right? But it is to say that if we put all of our hope for being satisfied in our lives, on a spouse, on a child, or our children, or our work, something's gonna crack. My point is this, that our greatest hopes, our greatest fulfillment, our greatest contentment, all of that will only come in heaven. Heaven can bear that weight. If you wanna read a great depiction of heaven sometime, read the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia called The Last Battle. And at, toward the end of this book, C.S. Lewis paints this incredible picture for us of what heaven is like, and, and he finishes it talking to the Bavinzi children about heaven, about what they're experiencing, and here's what he says. As he spoke, referring to Aslan, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen were so great and so beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can most truly say that we all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. He's describing heaven. He's saying, you know what? All of your experiences on earth and all of your life on earth is, is like having a cover page and a title. And then when we get to heaven, our life really begins. It begins with chapter one and every chapter gets better. Every chapter gets more meaningful. Every chapter gets more fulfilling as we continue on with the Lord. Now, <laughs> let me... Let me finish with this. I read this great quote, and again, I'm just quoting, okay? I'm just quoting this professor from uh, Abilene Christian University who, in a very funny way, reduces the message of the book of Revelation to three lines. He says, God's team wins. Choose your team. Don't be stupid. God's team wins. Choose your team. Don't be stupid. Well, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. And, and Lord, we know that what it means to be on your team. We know that our ultimate hope, our ultimate fulfillment, satisfaction comes from you. We know, that, Lord, that with all of the beauty and all the magnificence of heaven, that what really matters is that we will see you face to face. We'll be in your presence that will be with you for eternity, and we give you praise. And Lord, we ask this morning that we will take great hope and strength and purpose from the truth of heaven, that we know the story doesn't end here, Lord, but it continues on, that life really starts after we leave this place. And we are grateful for that truth, Lord. We thank you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the band's going to play for just a minute quietly, and I'd like you to think about two little questions while they do, and then they'll do their last song for us. But uh, here are the two questions. Where is your ultimate hope this morning? Where is your ultimate hope this morning, and where do you get your reason and your strength to live a courageous life? <laughs>